Christians agree that worship must be biblical, but too many Christians focus on a handful of texts. To understand and do the Christian liturgy, we need to take account of the whole Bible. We at Theopolis are very pleased to let you know that today is the release date for Theopolitan Liturgy, the latest book from Peter Lightheart in Theopolis Books. In Theopolitan Liturgy, Peter Lightheart examines the liturgical features of creation, such as the world being a temple and history as a dialogue with God. Because creation is inherently liturgical, the liturgy isn't a retreat from the world. Rather, it's a transformation of the world. To check out more of the Theopolitan Liturgy and to purchase the book, there's a link in the show notes for you. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on with our series in the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 35, verses 5 through 12, looking at the death of Deborah. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you are sharpened by this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing the death of Deborah in Genesis 35. We're in Genesis 35. And I guess what I should do is just begin again, remind us that we've kind of had Cain and Abel over again here, that circumcising all these men of Salem made them brothers, and then we murdered our brother here, and after Cain murdered his brother and God spoke to him, Cain went out and built a city. After this murder happens, God speaks to Jacob, and Jacob goes and builds an altar. So there's a contrast. Jacob was not directly responsible for what happened with this brother-murder situation, but he is the head of the nation of Israel which has now become at least a proto-nation, as we'll see. And so he's told to leave, he has to leave, and in a sense go to a land of wandering, because they are going to wander for a little while, but he builds an altar and a place to worship God instead of building a Babylon, a false city. So we can start chapter 35, verse 1. And God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and stay there. Remain there for a while. And construct an altar there. Slaughter side is the way Fox translates this. To the God, to the Mighty One, El, who was seen by you when you fled from Esau, your brother, way back at the beginning, of the God who was seen at the top of the ladder to heaven. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are in your midst. Purify yourself and change your garments. We looked at that last time, the baptism and changing of garments that we traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The sweat of the brow coming down on the nose as washing and God changing their garments and these things being foundational aspects of change from sin to redemption. Let us arise and go to Bethel, and there I will construct an altar to the God who answered me in the day of my distress. He was with me on the way that I went. So it reminds them of the initial encounter with God at Babel when Jacob was distressed, when he was forced to leave his mother and his father, come out with absolutely nothing in his hand. God took care of him and has been with him right along. 
In verse 4, they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hand along with the sacred rings that were in their ears and Jacob buried them, concealed them, this translation says, under the oak that's near Shechem. The sacred rings we saw were a sign of the ear being opened to the words of some particular god and they're like a little radio receiver in your ear to hear whatever god they're associated with. It's essentially the meaning of that custom and so these rings are linked with these gods and they're put away with the gods and the gods are killed. They're buried and that's not the normal word for burial which we will see in just a few minutes which implies an honorable interment but this is just digging a hole and putting them in it and they're put with this oak near Shechem and precisely why we're told the business about the tree is a good question. Later in a few verses Deborah, Rebecca's nurse is going to be buried under an oak as well well, that seems to be a contrast. I don't think we're supposed to think that she was the source of idolatry. Maybe she was, but I don't know. The business of putting them under an oak is interesting. Perhaps just as a way of saying, when you see this oak, remember this is a place where we got rid of all these things. A visible marker of a turning away from sin and destroying the cause of your sin, which is idolatry. Now we come to verses 5 to 7, this is where we'll start. And they moved on. We're moving south here, we're moving toward Egypt, as we'll see. And this sets us up for the Joseph story. And a dread from God lay upon the towns that were around them, so that they did not pursue Jacob's sons. Not just Jacob, but particularly the sons are pointed to here. Jacob came back to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan. That is now Bethel, he and the people that were with him. And he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, the mighty one of the house of the mighty one. <laughs> For there had God been revealed to him, the power of God is not good there. For there had God been revealed to him when he fled from his brother. This is where the movement to the house of God takes place. After their repentance, which is at least formal, we know that these sons continued to be pretty wayward bunch, for a while at least, Reuben, but at least officially they have buried these idols, and God protects them as they go. And of course we've compared this in previous time, I've compared it to coming out of Egypt and the fear of God being on the Canaanites, and, and that's mentioned here again, but I think we also have to compare it back to Cain, when uh, God sends Cain out, Cain leaves and goes out from the land where his family is, God puts a mark on him to protect him as he leaves. And so this idea that God meets with people and even if they don't fully repent, which Cain clearly did not, all he did was complain, my punishment is too great, well it can't be too great, he committed murder, he should have been put dead, so being exiled is not too great, but God puts a mark on him so that he's protected from whoever the other people were that were around about, his other brothers, I guess, or whoever in the future, because these people are going to live for hundreds of years, 
way on down the line, you know, four or five hundred years from now, somebody might say, I think I'll kill old Cain. He was dead. Uh, well, somehow or other there was a fear or some protection. And we have something similar here. Then we come to Luz. We're reminded that the city is still called Luz. That's what it was called back in chapter 28. And in a sense, we don't need to be told it again. Chapter 28, verse 19, he called the name of the place Bethel, house of the mighty one. However, Luz was the name of the city in former times. We already know this. And we already know it's in the land of Canaan. So these things are mentioned for particular reasons. I think that one stress here is that Jacob renames the place by faith because it's a sign of the future that he calls it by a different name. It won't be called Luz. It's going to be called Luz for about three centuries more, but the name has already changed. It would be as if we said, we won't call Niceville Niceville anymore because nice is not what the kingdom is all about. We'll call it Sedecville, Righteousville. We just all started calling it that. And 300 years from now, the city officially changes its name from Cute and Niceville to Righteousville or something. I mean, that would be the idea. You rename by faith, and you grow into the new name. Actually, they're going to be conquered into this name. The city of Luz will change its name when Joshua comes back and changes it. Jacob, once again, reiterates that he's going to change the name of this place to the house of God. Again, following Cain, Cain names his wicked city Enoch. Luz, being a Canaanite city, is an extension of Enoch. If we just think about Genesis, you have Cain and his city, and then after the flood, you have Nimrod and his city, and they're scattered out, and the descendants of the Hamites then are focused down on the Canaanites, and the Canaanites have their cities, and Luz is this city. So there's a line down from Enoch, city of Enoch, down to Luz. Now, the place is renamed. Just as Babylon, the original Tower of Babel, becomes New Jerusalem, so Luz becomes Bethel when the kingdom comes, and it's renamed. History changes. Canaan is specifically mentioned, I think, it's to anticipate the fact that later on, when we come out of Egypt under Moses, and we were in the wilderness wandering on our way to the land of Canaan, we find out from Rahab that everybody heard about it and was afraid. A great fear of God came upon the people in the land of Canaan when the Jews came out of Egypt, and then they said, gee, how come these guys haven't come on over and conquered us? Because the Hebrews got stuck wandering in the wilderness for 38 years because of their sins. So there's protection from God as we move, and I think probably the land of Canaan thing here points back to the fact that this is the land of Hamites and sinners. Maybe I should say a little bit more about that. We think of land of Canaan just as a technical term for this geography, but when we read it here, and really in the Bible, it means the land that belongs to this guy Canaan who was cursed by God. So try to read this without all of our associations. When we read it, the land of Canaan. Okay, who was Canaan? Well, Ham attacked his father, and Canaan was cursed to be a slave, and the Canaanites are focused in on the city of Sodom and they're homosexuals, and then Lot goes out and his daughters have picked up this behavior, 
and his daughters do something to him that's similar to what Ham did to Noah. They invade the tent, only it's much worse. So the sin of Ham, improper relationship with the father, carries on down through the Canaanites to Sodom and then to Lot. That's what Canaan is. It's a land that belongs to this kind of people. And God has already said their iniquity is growing and growing and growing. And in Sodom it was time to destroy it. And eventually the whole land is going to be to that point and will destroy it. And so that is the place. It's not just this hunk of geography over here like in the state of Florida. But it's in a particular place that is corrupt and is on its way to destruction. And this geography is going to be theirs and it's going to become a house of God. The whole land becomes a house of God in Ezekiel. And this particular place is going to become a house of God in only a couple of centuries or so. So that's the way we need to hear this when we hear it. It's in this corrupt land. The land has been promised, the land is going to be given because the people who have it don't deserve to keep it anymore. So he comes there. He came back to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, the land that was given to these wicked people. And that is now Bethel, the city was. And so from the standpoint of whoever did the final editing of Genesis, this name has already been changed. So Samuel went back and added this in long after Joseph wrote it or Moses wrote it even. Somebody after Joshua adds this in so that we say, yeah, it really is now Bethel added it in under divine inspiration. And the canon isn't closed until AD 70, so additional parenthetical statements can be put in by God's prophets from time to time. And there are a number of them in Genesis where some geographical place is updated. And this is one of them. He and all the people that were with him. Why does it say that? Verse 2 says, Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away these gods... And they do, and then it says they moved on, and they come to the land of Canaan, and they come to what will eventually be Bethel, he and all the people who were with him. I think that there's at least an idea here that all those who are with him who turned away from their false gods now are brought the full distance. What does Jesus say that's similar to this? Of all that you've given me, I haven't lost any except the one that was really not given to me in the first place. So I think there's something similar here. I don't know why else this would be rephrased, but it's that everybody arrived. Everybody who was with him was involved in this sin. Remember Simeon and Levi, they could not have destroyed this town without a bunch of Jacob's men helping them out. And all the brothers fell on the spoil. So everybody but Jacob himself was involved in this sin. And now all who are with him put away their false gods. And as a result, all who are with him are protected on the way, and all who are with him arrive. So there's something positive here. If you turn away, then God will protect this entire group. And we are thinking in terms of a nation here. Nation language is important. It'll be very important in what comes up immediately, the way God phrases his blessing to us. I mentioned this last week and we'll get to it again today. I think that the promise originally was you'll have seed like the stars and you'll have seed like the sand. Lots and lots of descendants. But here it's you will have nation, an organized 
national structure. And so this business of all the people with him, I think, is probably stressed for that reason. They all come together and they're all one group. They are Israel, not just Jacob's servants. Well, verse 7, There he built an altar and he called the place the Mighty One of the House of the Mighty One, for there God, Elohim, the normal word for God, had been revealed to him when he fled from his brother. So we arrived, we do what was commanded, and then at Bethel, having come to this place, Deborah, Devorah, Rivkah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel, beneath the oak, so there's an oak there, and they called its name Alon Bakut, Oak of Weeping. Now, why is this here? I don't know all the answers to all these questions, but <laughs> I think we're supposed to think about it, at least. Why are we told this? We were not originally told Rebecca's nurse's name. We were told that when she was sent to marry Isaac, her nurse was sent with her. And that's it. And kind of like, so what? And now we're told that she died. And she's buried at Bethel. And we're really not given a full notice of Rebecca's death because I think Rebecca died while Jacob was gone. Well, we'll see in just a second that the Bible does tell us where she's buried and it's not like she's left out. But let's take this either of two ways. Deborah, which means bee, honeybee, she's the nurse. So it's from her milk that Rebecca learns everything. So in a sense, Deborah has a grandmother status in the family. Now, if Rebecca is an evil person, then by implication, now, the source of her evil and wicked, rebellious, lying, devious ways is Deborah, her nurse, because the nurse is the one who spends a lot of time with the baby, and the nurse is the one the baby clings to even when the baby is given to his mother and he gets to see his mother, and the little girl grows up and she sees her father from time to time. The only thing fathers spend a lot of time with daughters back then. But the nurse is the one you always think of as the one you're closest to because she's the one that held you and fed you when you were little and all that kind of stuff. So from the earliest time, Deborah is the one who had the influence on Rebecca. And if Rebecca is an evil person, then Deborah is the source of that evil. And she was from this foreign land and she's buried at Bethel and she's buried under an oak just like those false gods. We could do that. Or we could say Rebecca is a blessing, which is what I've said right along. And if Rebecca, remember when we first met Rebecca, they said, would you like to come and be part of the covenant people of Abraham and have his God and be the mother for Isaac's children? And instantly she said, yes, let's go. And there wasn't any persuading necessary. She was alacritous in her desire to become part of the covenant and her name is a play on the word baraka which means blessing so if she's a blessing then deborah the honey that comes from deborah the bee would be a source for her 
And that is my guess as to part of the reason that this is important, that Rebecca is a blessing, she is a righteous person, and now the righteous grandmother, the mother behind her, is given this burial, and she's buried at the house of God, and the place is called the Oak of Weeping, and that has implications that we'll look at in just a minute. So I think that's why attention is given to it. To tell us that these lines of generations here, and one of the lines of generations is from this unknown person, Deborah, whose honey, whose milk, was and milk and honey are put together in the Bible, whose milk fed Rebecca and made her the righteous and wonderful person that she was, and so now she's honored, she's buried at Bethel, as we'll see, Rebecca is buried at Mamre with Isaac and Abraham. But they're not there. She dies along this way here, and she's with them. So whatever righteousness Jacob has, which he gets from his mother Rebecca, comes from his nursing grandmother Deborah. And so we're told this, and I think you know we would reflect on it. We could talk about mothers and grandmothers and the influence that you have and how it goes down through generations. And even if you are a nurse or an aunt or an uncle or somebody who just spends a lot of time with kids, you have influence on them and you can be buried at the house of God when it's all over because that's who you represent. If God has had an influence on Jacob's life, part of it was coming from Deborah through his mother, Rebecca. Now, how did she get to be with them? We'll find out in a few verses next week probably that Isaac is living in Mamre in Hebron, which is still to the south of where we are now. We haven't gotten there yet. So if Rebecca is living there with Isaac still, if she's still alive, how come Deborah's with Jacob? If Rebecca is dead, then maybe we understand why Deborah's with Jacob. Again, I just think we have to fill in some blanks here, and at least we can come up with a scenario that makes sense. My scenario would be Jacob is growing up, he's got his mother. He knows Deborah very well, since Deborah was Rebecca's nurse. Jacob was always closest to his mother for 77 years. He comes back into the Promised Land. Rebecca is already dead, but at some point he collects Deborah. She wants to be with him. She doesn't want to be with Esau, and she's got no reason to stay with Isaac. She comes to be with Jacob, her favorite grandson. Just put it that way. So my guess is that's what she's doing there. And since Rebecca is apparently off the scene, rejoining with Deborah takes the place of rejoining with his mother. Remember that Rebecca had said, go and spend a few days with my brother Laban and then come back to me. Well, he doesn't come back to her. We have to assume she's dead. And he comes back to Deborah instead, which is equivalent. C here will come back to be Oak of Weeping. Mourning for Deborah stands in for mourning for Rebecca. I think that's probably at least part of it. And I've got down the consonants here. Blessing is the sound Barakah. You can put an H on that if you want. Or Barak, B-R-Q. Rebecca, as we saw before, is R-B-Q-H, Rebecca. Baraka, Rebecca. The word for weep is Baka. It's a K instead of a Q, but of course it sounds almost identical. 
whatever slight difference in the placement of those two sounds, I think a Q is made in the back of the throat and a K toward the front of your mouth, ba-ka, as opposed to ba-ka, they're very close. And so Oak of Weeping would be a pun on Oak of Blessing and Oak of Rebecca. All of these would be implied, would be in the background of what you would hear. And so again, we have this business of the mother. The mother figures are going out of the way. And we'll come back to that in just a second. I want to take B here on page 127 first. We have noted that before that a full burial narrative for Rebecca is absent from Genesis, and some commentators have made much of this. But Genesis 49.31 does tell us where she was buried, and that's interesting to consider that just briefly. Jacob says, this is in chapter 49 where he says where he wants to be buried. Genesis 49.29, Jacob commanded them, saying, I'm about to be gathered to my kinsmen. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, at the cave that's in the field of Machpelah that faces Mamre in the land of Canaan, which is the Hebron area. Abraham had acquired that field from Ephron the Hittite as a burial holding. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. An acquisition, the field and the cave that is in it from the sons of Heth, the Hittites. Well, this is in Hebron, chapter 35 at the end, says, Jacob came home to Isaac, his father, at Mamre, Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron. All these are the same place, Mamre, Kiriath Arba, and Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned, and Isaac died, and he was buried there. So, we are moving toward Hebron. We haven't gotten there yet. When we get there, eventually Isaac dies while Joseph is in Egypt, and we bury him there at Mamre. It turns out that Rebekah is buried there too. So I think we have to assume that she died earlier and she's buried there. But the Bible does tell us where she's buried, and she's buried in the honorable plot of the ancestors where everybody else is. We are also told that Leah dies there, and so I don't think Leah has died yet. Rachel is going to die before they get there. But then Leah dies while they're living there, and she's buried there. And Jacob wants to be buried next to her. Now, why doesn't Jacob want to be buried next to Rachel? We'll have to discuss that when we get to it. Or what that might or might not mean, be significant or insignificant. But I wanted to point out that the fact that Rebecca's death is not noted in the text and the fact that it doesn't say so they buried her in some place if somebody wants to make something out of that they can't because we are told where she's buried and she's buried right with Abraham it's about as nice a place to be buried as you can be she's in Abraham's bosom now the other thing is and I do think this gets us to the part of the theology of the passage at least part of it when you're growing up a child spends most of his time with his mother and then begins to move away from mother and relate to father. Just how it goes ordinarily. I guess you can have Mr. Mom situations and there's always been, but the normal thing is, and the thing that Genesis points to, child spends time with his mother and then begins to spend time with his father as he grows away from his mother and starts to have more relationship with the men 
And that's why you have a festival for the weaning of Isaac when Isaac is five. I don't know that that meant that Isaac continued to get a snack from his mama until he was five years old, but it does mean that there's a time when the child moves from being with the women to being with the men. And when Sarah turns Isaac over to Abraham and says, okay, at the age of five now, you're going to have to do a lot more with him. He's a boy after all. That's at that point that she says, I want Ishmael out of here because Ishmael is in the way. So this progression of leaving the mother and going to the father I think is partly here too. Jacob's mother and grandmother are now out of the picture altogether and he has now got to relate to God as his father in a new way. So we're going to meet the father, we're leaving the mother behind and that would seem to be part of it as well. I realize that sounds extended, but we're trying to feel our way to why God ordained these events to happen the way they did and why they're recorded this way. And I think part of it is that we're going to be relating exclusively to God the Father now. The mother is now out of the picture altogether. Whatever security he might have felt to have his mother and his grandmother with him is not there anymore. He's really on his own now. He's not with his father. And even more than ever before, since he got back in the promised land, he's on his own. And so God meets him again. Also think of it this way. We're coming to Bethel. The first time we came to Bethel was after we had to leave Rebekah behind. Now we come to Bethel, we leave Deborah behind. So the first time we had to leave, Esau is after us, and we have to leave our mother behind and go out and encounter God all by ourselves at Bethel. This time, Esau is after us, which is all these brothers that we've murdered here, all the other Canaanites. They're after us, and we have to leave our mother behind. Deborah dies, and we meet God at Bethel. Only now it's not just me by myself like it was before. It's this whole nation of people with me. So those are parallels, and they help explain the movement of events here. When you have to leave your family and have to get out on your own, that's often where God meets you and says, okay, now I'm your father and I'm your mother and I'll be the one. Let's do 9 to 15. God was seen by Jacob again when he came back from the country of Aram and he gave him a blessing. That was right away. I mean, we have this Gee, we already know he came back from the country of Aram. In fact, he's been back from the country of Aram for quite a while. Maybe even 20 years have gone by since we came back from the country of Aram. And now we're reminded of it. So there's some reason why we're being reminded of that here. God said to him, Jacob is your name. Jacob shall your name be called no more, for your name will be Israel. And he called his name Israel. And God said further to him, I am the mighty one, Shaddai, El Shaddai. Bear fruit and be many nations. Yes, a host of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come out from your loins. The land that I gave to Abraham and Yitzchak, to you I give it and to your seed after you. And God went up from beside him at the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a standing pillar at the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a pouring offering on it and cast oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, house of God. So this naming of stuff keeps going here 
Bethel over and over again. And imagine what liberals do with this. They say, well, there's one story behind this where some patriarch names the place Bethel when he's out in the wilderness by himself. And then there's another story about the naming of Bethel, which is that he builds an altar. And there's another story about the naming of Bethel. They say all these are different stories with different sources and different explanations. But they're not. It's all the same story and there's different nuances of meaning. I have down here this section parallels 25-23 where God's word comes to Rebekah and is followed by the birth of their twins. Here God's word comes to Jacob immediately after a reminder of Rebekah and this is followed by the birth of Rachel's son Benjamin. This is in the chiastic structure that you have back in your notes. In both cases God's word concerns future nations to come from Rebekah and from Jacob. And in terms of the chiasm of the structure, we're way back to the beginning of the narrative where God comes to Rebecca and says, two nations are in your womb, two peoples will come forth from you, and now God is going to say the same kind of thing to Jacob. Many nations will come from you. Verse 9 then, God was seen by Jacob again when he came back from the country of Aram. God's visible appearance matches God's appearance at Bethel the first time. And in terms of the second narrative, chiasm, these two events match each other. God appears before and after the journey to Aram, mentioned here to establish the connection and this chiasm. Remember that we outlined the Jacob story two ways, and the second way of outlining it, the two Bethel incidents are parallel. So we leave, go into Aram, God appears to us, and we see something. We come back, God appears to us, and we see something. Jesus says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son has revealed him. So this is the second person that has seen whatever seeing means. But there was some visible glory manifestation. I think we have to say that the glory cloud appeared here. Maybe the full ladder to heaven, but there was some glory here. The God of the glory appeared to our father Abraham, says the New Testament. Verse 10 We have a chiasm that is obscured in our Fox translation and probably in others. Your name is Jacob, not will be called your name any longer Jacob, for now Israel will be your name, and he called his name Israel. So if you look at that, that's the way it's phrased, and it gives you this nice song that Jacob becomes Israel. Now, this has already happened at Peniel. When God wrestled with us at Peniel, he said the name was changed to Israel. But the name takes on a new meaning now. At that point, it meant primarily you have been a replacement, and that's your priestly name, and you have been a good priestly replacement for Isaac, and now I'm going to give you this kingly name, one who wrestles with God. Because a king has to make these very hard decisions. Priest has easy decisions to make. All a priest has to do is obey. A king has to make terribly tough decisions, wisdom decisions. Choices between the lesser of two evils. King is like an army commander. You've got the enemy's over here. I've got to send this platoon over here on a suicide mission knowing that all of these men will be killed to draw the fire so I can send this other group around here. Well, that's not an easy decision. That's the lesser of two evils. It'd be nice not to have to send anybody to his doom. But if you're a king, you have to make these terribly hard decisions. A priest doesn't. He just says, is this cheap blemished or not? <laughs> priest doesn't have those kinds. So in the church... The pastor's priestly responsibilities are easy. Make sure there's bread and wine and preach the word. 
in a sense, say exactly what the Bible says, that's easy, so to speak. But the pastoral, kingly aspect, when you've got to counsel people and that kind of thing, that's the tough part. That requires wisdom and not just obedience. So this change from Jacob to Israel the first time had that implication, but now there's another implication of it. It's explained in verses 11 and 12. Israel will mean the nation and the land. We've already seen that anticipated in chapter 34, verse 7, where Jacob's sons came back from the fields after they heard about the seduction of Dinah, and they said he had done a disgrace in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. The word Israel there means the community. And that's the first time we have this word Israel meaning a community of people and not an individual person. But now it's spelled out in detail. Now we just read, no longer will your name be called Jacob. Well, is that true? Well, not formally, it's not true. God does call him Jacob later on. And some people say, well, Jacob, that's the name that he has when he's sinful. When he's righteous, he's called Israel. No, you cannot make that work at all. In chapter 46, when Jacob is traveling to Egypt, very interesting how it's written. Chapter 46, verse 1. Israel traveled with all that was his and came to Beersheba, and he slaughtered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God said to Israel in the visions of the night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Behold me. And he said, Here am I, the mighty one of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. So if we were looking at that passage in detail, we'd have to say, Why are the two different names used? Israel as a leader of the nation is making this journey. Israel as the leader of the nations offers the sacrifices and then God comes and talks to him as an individual and calls his name Jacob. So God is going to call his name Jacob again in the future and he will be called Jacob as well as Israel. So when it says your name will no longer be called Jacob, it's not talking about him as an individual and what is explained is we're talking about the nation. Actually, the nation occasionally is called Jacob too, but not very often. Israel is becoming a collective noun for the nation. E, I've got down here on page 128, until the sons put away their idols, they cannot be truly Israel. Remember, the New Testament tells us not all are of Israel who are truly of Israel. And Simeon and Levi are not truly of Israel. They say they are, and they say... This should not have been done in Israel, and they avenge it, but they are acting wrongly. In fact, they're acting like the Pharisees in the New Testament, who claim to be Israelites and are putting Christians to death, their own brothers. In fact, you can make more parallels with this if you want. Who's the first Christian who's put to death? Stephen, who is a Greek Jew. And here we have these Canaanites who were circumcised to become Jews. They're not just there by blood, they're in the secondary category, and we murder them, and we claim to be Israelites. So the Israelites are murdering these Greek Jews, like Stephen, and then trying to make the Gentiles keep the laws of circumcision later on. They're not truly of Israel. So God is saying, what does it mean to be truly of Israel? And it means that you put away your idols. It's only after these idols are put away, and their garments are changed, and they wash themselves, that they can be truly of Israel and now this promise can be made that, yeah, your sons will be of Israel. I'm not going to set you aside. 
Remember, that's the question that lies behind this whole chapter here, at least as we start out. All of Jacob's sons are involved in this murder. Simeon and Levi go in there and they murder the people, and then all the other brothers go in there and they take the spoil and they kill more people and they do this and they do that. They're all involved in it. So the entire offspring of the covenant is under the curse of God. And Jacob knows that. Jacob knows that this is going to wreck the covenant. And, of course, his witness is destroyed, and that was the whole purpose of the covenant, was to be a witness to these Gentiles. And so it's in that context that God comes to him and says, Don't be afraid. I'm still on your side. Put away these idols. And so he tells them to put away the idols, and they do, and God comes to him and says, Good. You put away the idols, and so now I can work with you. Now your sons will be redeemed, and you will have nations come from your loins. But the alternative was, God comes and says, let's take two alternatives. They murder all their brothers there in Shechem. God comes to them and says, Jacob, I'm sorry. Your sons have all defiled the covenant. I'm going to kill them all now. And we'll start over. And you and Rachel will have one more child, Benjamin. And we won't get to have a nation now. It's all going to be postponed a couple of generations. All the sons were already born with Joseph has disappeared but we don't know that from this passage we know it later on I'm going to wipe them all out we'll start over with Benjamin Rachel will have Benjamin and then maybe Benjamin will grow up and he'll have 12 sons and we can do it again remember when we came out of Egypt and the people sinned God said I'm going to wipe all these people out and start over with you Moses remember that so that's one alternative wipe out all these sons and start over again with Benjamin who's going to be born about a year later. But that's not what God says. God comes to him and says, no, no, I want you to go and put away the false gods. So we have a second scenario. Jacob comes to his household and says, put away all these false gods. And they say, no, we won't do that. Get your eyes off of that false god. We won't put away our false gods. We like these false gods. We're not going to take these earrings off. We're not going to stop consulting the horoscope. We're going to do whatever we want. Well, in that case... God appears to Jacob at Bethel and says, Sorry, I'm not going to be making any host of nations out of you because they're idolatry. But now you see, God has said, I'm going to give you a second chance. And the people do get rid of their false gods. And so now the promise of the nation can be truly made. This is by far the best outcome for everyone concerned. The things that they have done heretofore have defiled what it means to be Israel. Remember that they have already sold Joseph into Egypt. And got this down here. Chronologically, this event happens after they've sold Joseph into Egypt and before their full repentance. They become true Israel now and act as true Israel later on. If we were to lay this out in chronology, this event becomes kind of a watershed. They've put away the idols. God calls them true Israel. And what we move out from here is Judah begins to repent. Judah begins to lead the other sons in repentance. And the book of Genesis ends. They've all been restored. But this is sort of a, an initial, a very essential transition in these events. Well, I've already said the stuff on verse 11. He says, I am El Shaddai. That means a powerful life giver. The phrasing is not sons and daughters, but nations, indicating that the tribes of Israel contrast or compare at the first Bethel, he says, your sons will be seed like the dust of the earth. Just a whole lot of them. Here, we're talking about an organized people. 
a nation, even an assembly of nations, is literally what it says. Host is not the right word here, really. It's not seveoth, but kahal. An assembly of nations will come from you. And that the great assembly is at Mount Sinai. Later on, the prophets will refer to the great assembly of the tribes at Sinai. So that's pointing forward. And then the statement, kings will come from you. We're really in national language here. Kings will come eventually. Chapter 36 will show that kings came first to Edom. Esau gets kings before Israel does, but Israel will have kings as well. Because Cain built the first city, but Solomon, Jesus, the king, builds the last city. Okay, we'll stop here, and we'll come back next time and finish this promise and move forward. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.